Hello there, how's it going Richard? Hello sir, how are you? Yeah, great, still reeling from watching this, The Reckoning, it was uh, extremely harrowing, but before we get to that, uh, Richard Grannon has a massive YouTube channel, he does a lot of videos about narcissism, he was in a narcissistic relationship, I've watched him tell that story multiple times, and I, I still my jaw drops every single time, so I urge people... Go over to his channel, check out his work, and subscribe. And his links are in the description box. And he had me on his channel as well earlier this year. So cheers for that. And um, yeah, so the reckoning. What what do you, what do you make of it? Um, the 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 case uh, itself. I haven't I haven't seen the reckoning, but watching the uh, the case itself, I was as uh, you were just talking to your guest there. One of the most frightening things was this sort of uh, institutional level narcissism, this collective narcissism that permitted a clearly evil, deranged man to keep getting access to vulnerable people. And I just think oh, he's, he's obviously a terrible individual and it's easy to condemn him and lay it all on him. But how many people facilitated it? And what was going through their minds when they were facilitating this behavior? How do they, how do they justify it? How do they sleep at night? As, as you just said, being given access to some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Do you think it's a case of when a media entity has invested that much into somebody and they've become the most famous person in the country, the ultimate cash cow, they protect the cash cow at all costs until, you know, sometimes it's a case of the public are bound to find out, so then they're going to damage limitation mode. But in this case, he got away with it, didn't he? Yeah, there's, there's, there really needs to be... Um... I mean, the world has moved on since then. I think it's probably harder to have the kind of power as a celebrity that he had without the information leaking out in the age of, of technology and social media. But we really do need to look at how celebrities are treated and where the boundaries are drawn. Um, because, yeah, just because you're a cash cow and you're drawing in the audience and you're a guaranteed moneymaker, I mean, it, it can't, it, it doesn't mean that we should throw all moral boundaries to the wind. That's that's just way too cynical for me, way too cynical. So where did Savile score when it comes to tallying up narcissistic tendencies? Uh, obviously, I'm, you know, I've, ne I've never met him. I'm not a clinician um, and you're not supposed to do uh, you know, remote diagnosis. So th this, is just, this is just my opinion, what I'm about to say. Um, he must have been a full-blown malignant narcissist comorbid with psychopathy to have done what he did seemingly without remorse seemingly gleefully for years knowing that he was causing incredible pain um, in other human beings lives just for his own pleasure there's no there's no real reason for it it's just that that's what he wanted to do so he went ahead and did it we talk about a narcissist having a, a lack of empathy, I think this man must have been devoid of any and all forms of human compassion in order to do what he did. Richard, so for many of us then, I know you're well versed in this terminology, but for many of us, um, we need some things explaining. What specifically is a malignant narcissist? So narcissistic personality disorder, um, it manifests in different ways in different people. And generally speaking, when you hear clinicians saying a malignant narcissist, 
this is not somebody who merely feels compelled to be hyper competitive, merely feels compelled through their own insecurities to put others down and to cheat and to be exploitative. It's, it's kind of another way of saying they're comorbid with, with psychopathy and sadism. You're talking about probably dark triad, dark tetrad personality types. I'm using more jargon. So the dark triad, dark tetrad, what they've done is they've said some people are so evil. We can't just call them narcissists. We can't just say they have psychopathy. We have to account for their sadism and we have to account for their Machiavellianism. So you end up trying to pile you know, uh, triad is three, tetrad is four. You have to start adding in order for in order for normal civilized people to. Un- it's baffling for the rest of us. If you have a, any moral decency whatsoever, it's baffling. And clinicians are human beings, of course, so they come up with these other terms. So malignant narcissism is another way of saying this person is either dark tetrad or dark triad. So they are actually highly sadistic. They're not just doing it as a compulsion because they need to. They're actively engaged in the enjoyment of inflicting pain on another person. The Machiavellianism is he he was planning what he did and he was planning with other people to do what he did. He must have known how it was going to play out. He had a format and a means of entrapping these young people and a whole strategy. And it wouldn't have been just him that knew about it. So that's where we start to say, okay, this is not just, you know, your boss is a bit of a, is a bit of a knob and has narcissistic personality disorder traits. This is full-blown malignant narcissism. This person is a, a narcissistic psychopath, a truly evil piece of work. So from the sounds of that, Richard, is that the type of narcissist that can do the most damage out of all narcissists, the malignant? Yes, um, that would be how it would be defined. So if something is malignant within the body, it's doing damage to the cells around it. Uh, largely speaking, when we say narcissist or psychopath, by the American Psychiatric Association diagnostic uh, coordinates of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, all of the people who are in the cluster B spectrum, they have a negative impact on, on the people around them. They hurt the people around them actively. They're actively engaged in um, exploitative and damaging behavior. So malignant means, yes, you're damaging the cells, the, the, the culture, the society, the community around you. Um, so that's why we would call it malignant, yeah. So I think the reckoning took some liberties, and one of them was they showed Savile as struggling with these contradictory character traits whereby... He was leading the audience to believe that all of his charity work was offsetting his evil. And I think they based that because there was a TV show he was on and, and there's a quote, a famous quote from it where he says when he's at the pearly gates and they threaten to not let him in, that he's going to point out how much charity work he has done and that will forfeit the bad. Do you think um, he was struggling or just pure psychopathic, no remorse, no, didn't give a shit? I've had a weird life, as you know, mate. You've had yours. I kept talking to you. You've had a much weirder life than me. One of one of the many jobs I've had um, over the years is consulting um, for uh, video games, creators of video games, the narratives of video games, uh, for novels, and for uh, independent films as well. And what's happened that I've sat on meetings like this, when you introduce a truly evil character, the writer will start to shy away because they think they're going to lose the audience. They're like, we have to reintroduce some humanity here. And I get it. I 100% understand the drive 
to not show somebody as evil as they are because it almost has a numbing effect on the audience. You're just facing pure, unrelenting evil. How's the audience supposed to engage with this character? How are we supposed to invest in him and want to follow along? So I think it's um, it's a writer's catch-22. And answer to your question, no, I don't think a man that was capable, because by his deeds, not his words, we can judge him. We know what he did. So we know the level of evil that he was capable of. I seriously doubt a man like that had any capacity for a conscience or any capacity for introspection or doubt in what he was doing. I'm sure he didn't doubt it at all. He probably felt he was entitled to do it because he had the power to do it, which would be a common um, uh, psychopathic ethic. Yeah, having researched him and written about him, I have to concur on that because they showed him in the confessional and he confesses to some low-level sins, but then he says, I need to confess for a friend of mine. And he tells the priest the actual things he's been doing against these young people, his friend. The priest knows what he's saying, but I thought, no way Savile is going to drop a dime on himself like that in some confessional with his very distinct voice and everything else. No, no. I, 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 think, I think it's the writer's conundrum. They just don't want a character who's so unrelentingly evil that the uh, relentlessly evil that the uh, the audience just will will lose their capacity to sort of um, attach to it in any way. No, I think I think they've added that. And it's if if we're going to follow a character, it makes sense. Like for writers, like we're going to follow this character. If there's nothing in his head but evil, what's the audience supposed to? <laughs> you, you need you need another character to bounce off in that case. You know, like. Uh, the the only time pure evil has been written that I can remember was by a very psychiatrically informed uh, author, which is Thomas Harris when he wrote Silence of the Lambs. But we see Hannibal Lecter, this kind of purely evil character, we always see him through the eyes of a Clarice Starling. So yeah, no, I don't I don't think he was I don't think he was going to confession or wrestling with his with his enormous guilt. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Hannibal Lecter, because I've read that, and he kind of ingratiates you with how cultured he is, and he's listening to classical music and yes. reading, you know, uh, classics. All right, so we're, we're with Richard Graham right now. If you've got any questions for him about Savile, about narcissism, put them in the chat. And we've got our first question is from A Nexus. Are the dark tetrads insane? I.e., Savile looked totally insane. Just looking at him, my crazy detector went off upon first gaze. So are these people clinically insane? Because he come across to me as quite calculating, methodical, cunning. Um, it, it was actually raising Hannibal Lecter again. It's one of the Hannibal Lecter's first um, enemies that puts him into prison is Will Graham. And one of the lines in the books is that Will Graham says, yes, you're far more intelligent than me, Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter says, but you still managed to catch me. Will Graham says, yes, I have an advantage. Dr. Lecter said, what is that? And he replies, you're insane. Yes, they are insane. When you're talking about this, these types of people as, um, as successful as they may seem to be, as calculating as they may seem to be, they are, we know, fulfilling a grandiose delusional fantasy that represents a kind of an ongoing psychosis. They've had a break with reality because of genetic factors, trauma in childhood, environmental factors yeah they are uh and to all intents and purposes insane yes so one of the areas that the dramatization did show that i didn't think it would show was savile in the morgue and 
how does that yeah how does that factor in to all of the other tendencies you have um covered here i mean is that something completely next level for these people i i don't i i haven't read much of the literature on on necrophilia um, but i've read a little bit i know it's not um it's not massively common even amongst career criminal psychopaths I imagine um, it would be part of that narcissistic, psychopathic, grandiose fantasy um, of being godlike. So there's the element of they're breaking a terrible taboo because in all cultures all across the world, you don't you don't touch their bodies, you don't you don't do things to their bodies, um, and also it's power. I'm alive, you're dead. I can do absolutely whatever I want to you. So it's still part of this this psychotic, delusional fantasy that I mentioned earlier. Um, but thankfully, as far as I know, it is it is quite rare. Next question is, how much did his relationship with his mother affect cause his personality disorders? So in the dramatization, and I don't know how accurate it is because there's not much information about his relationship with his mother, but in the dramatization, it showed he was a real mummy's boy but she didn't love him. She said she went into the she went into the confession. She told the priest he was my seventh kid. I didn't want him. And I don't love him. So he was always craving her attention. Now his relationship was with her was extremely peculiar. You know they lived together. Uh, he bought her a property in Scarborough. They went on cruises together. And he said she was the only woman in his life. You know she would. It, it wasn't allowed to have long term relationships because he he only had space for his mother. And his mother would chase the women out of the house things like that. And then when she died, he did get to spend considerable time with her body. He kept her clothes hung up in the house for years and had them dry cleaned periodically and he would caress them. And so um, what, what do you make of that, Richard? I think there's the, there's, plenty of research on uh, criminal psychopathic types having an excessively enmeshed relationship uh, with their mother. I'm immediately reminded of the Cray twins. Um, it, it can be very, very, very damaging to a, a young person growing up, whether they're male or female, if they have a mother who is both smothering and um, ostentatiously loving and wanting to show the appearance of being a loving mother, but not actually providing that love and making them feel very, very cold. The narcissistic personality disorder typically requires a, the child to be forced into this polarity where their minds are pulled apart, basically, where they're being told, you're wonderful, you're amazing, you're incredibly special, you're the best of the best. But at the same time, they're receiving this contradictory signal but they're in a catch-22 and they're not allowed to point it out, which is that they're not lovable, that they're useless, that they are. Because for a child, for a mother not to love you is, is a kind of death. And I think um, that is effectively what happens in narcissistic personality disorder. The authentic, vulnerable, emotional parts of that young human being kind of go through a sort of death. And they never, and just this is just my opinion, not the orthodoxy, I don't think they ever recover from that so does that contribute to the sadism then if they felt they've gone through a death does them hurting other people give them back the power 
I, I think so. I think it's a case of, of getting back that power that they feel that they've lost. I usually associate sadism with um, with a lot of frustration. So if a child has has really, so if there's been aggression in the environment and they've been treated with quite a bit of violence and then they're having their needs and their wants and their drives actively suppressed and they're in an enmeshed relationship with one or both parents where the parents is quite aggressively putting their adult needs into the child. It doesn't necessarily need to be actual sexual, physical incest. There is something called emotional incest. It can just be a very inappropriate relationship with the child. That's where I see sadism coming out. It's like this boiling rage um, with a strong desire to take revenge, but it's boundaryless. They don't remember that it's their mother or their father they're furious with. They're sort of angry with the world, so anyone will do. Next question is from Jean. How do you react to these types of people, for instance, when the door is locked and you're on the wrong side? Well, uh, me personally. <laughs> well, what advice would you give to people who, are, you know, they end up in a room of a Savile type? Um, flattery, play for time. They are vulnerable. They are, and their, their vulnerabilities are that they're childlike, they're impressionable, and they're vain. So if you're playing for time in the hope that somebody else comes along and you can escape the room, uh, however you got into that situation, flattery, flattery there. It's kind of um, not kryptonite because it doesn't disempower them and it empowers them, but it makes them drunk. Um, so you like give them an overdose of narcissistic supply. They'll usually, aggression will not always, because if they get onto what you're doing, they could become very aggressive. If you do it subtly, if you're clever, um, it's a kind of catnip. So they will kind of become drunk and hypnotized and they'll just want to hear more and more and more. So it's um, what is known in complex post-traumatic stress disorder. That's a fawning response, but it, it, it could it could work. I'm not saying it's guaranteed to, but it could help. The more Savile got away with it must have made him more power hungry and entitled. Do you agree, Richard? Yes, I do not everybody believes in this and not everybody agrees with it, but I, I think I think it's got some some legs. The idea that narcissism and psychopathy is, is a kind of um, other people have said this, it almost you can see how it could go over and inter, interlock with ADHD type symptoms. And by that, I mean the the adrenophilia, the love of your own adrenaline and the need to be stimulated and to go for that rush. Once you've broken those social taboos, which is what psychopaths do, that's the psychopathic element of this character, is breaking the social taboos. That's why they end up uh, getting arrested and, and potentially in prison. You're going to need more. It's not going to do... It, it's not, So you've got... There's two hits if you're a narcissistic psychopath. You have narcissistic supply. People worship you. They're applauding you. You're so funny. You're so wonderful, Mr. Savile. The way you are with these kids is great. It's entertaining. Give us... Take some money. So he thinks he's amazing and special. The audience agrees. His employers agrees. He gets narcissistic supply. That's a high. The psychopathic supply will be more in terms of him getting what he wants. So he wants that power. So there's a hit from that. And he wants to break boundaries. He wants to do that which other people cannot do and which only he has the power to do. So yes, that would be like a drug. You would get your high. You'd snort the line of uh, power, 
but then obviously it would come down again and they tend to cycle. So we know with narcissists, they go through um, narcissistic elation. They got the drug, they got their high, then depletion. They become quite depressed and hungry again. And there is a, a cyclical pattern amongst uh, psychopaths as well, especially if they're comorbid with borderline personality disorder. So yes, is the short answer to your question. So, which leads to the question, if they are breaking boundaries then, once a boundary is broken multiple times, to get the same high, does the bar have to be raised whereby they do something even more taboo? I I would think so. If if the so I think we we've discussed this before and I think there's the let's say they broadly fall into two categories. There are people who really want to do this thing and this thing happens to be taboo. Now they may coast along for 10, 20, 30 years doing this one taboo thing. Let's say, that's um, an unfortunate example. Let's say it is necrophilia, as, as in this case. They really want that. They get it. They're happy with that. That's one level of narcissistic psychopathy. What if the person is addicted to breaking taboos themselves? Any taboo. Just give me a fresh taboo. Just give me a new terrible thing to do. Then, yes, you're going to be in this cycle of just needing to do worse and worse and worse things because it, you're not getting pleasure from the thing itself you're getting pleasure from the breaking of the thing itself. And that's, that, that's infinite. How do you, you'll never satiate that. That's a really dangerous personality. Yeah, because we interviewed an ex-Scotland Yard detective, John Wedger, on Sunday. If the viewers want to check that one out, it's called Was Jimmy a Fixer for the Elites? And he touched on Savile's bizarre relationship with Peter Sutcliffe because Savile was actually questioned about one of the Yorkshire Ripper's murders. The mm. corpse was left outside of his flat and there's speculation that it was kind of an offering to Savile. But looking at it from Savile's perspective, what Wedger speculated was that Savile did want to do things that were increasingly taboo. And he idolised the Yorkshire Ripper because the Yorkshire Ripper was doing things that Savile fantasised about doing but wouldn't do himself. I actually have personal experience of this and it relates to the question of being stuck in a room with a, with a psychopath. I've had a narcissistic psychopath tell me that he wants to kill. Uh, in his case, he, he was talking about killing women, but that he didn't have the courage to do it and that he actively admired um, killers who could. He said, I don't, I don't have the stomach for it, but I fantasize about it. I wish I could do it one of the weirdest and most unpleasant conversation, probably the most unpleasant conversation I've ever had in my life. Um, but yes, so I think he probably idolized, well, see, people think psychopaths don't have any ethics or morality. They do, they do have a code. It's just upside down and twisted. So in Savile's sick mind, he might look at a Sutcliffe and think, what a great guy. Wow, the courage that he has to do what he does. I wish I had that wonderful positive attribute mm. that's so that which is why when when writers come along and they have to write this stuff civilized normal people they can't they can't really get their hands around it they can't get around because it's so beyond uh, normal everyday life for the rest of us so we've got a question from patrick how did savile schmooze the royal family what do you make of that I get a bit conspiracy theory on that one. I, I mean, um, so uh, it, it's very, very creepy. 
It's very, very creepy. I don't really know what the royal family is. I have more questions than answers on that one. I wouldn't go so far as to say that anybody in that family would would be aware of what he was doing and want to be actively involved. But maybe some researchers out there may want to consider the possibility. And the royal family's big. I'm sure there's compartmentalized behavior that maybe just one or two figures in the royal family would engage with. But otherwise, I have no idea how he got access, uh, regular access to them. Why would they want to be... Why would they want to be associated with a commoner? Uh, and not not only that, an entertainer. It, it really doesn't make sense. So Jenny's asking if Savile's real-world behaviour indicated that his he knew his mother didn't love him. Um, yes, I think that's a good question. And I think that's a good summation. And it could be one of those things, you know, I... I I have I have worked for the probation service in in, in the UK. Um, it could be one of those things where you sit opposite a criminal, um, you sit across somebody who's mentally ill, and and that could have been, say, we were having a normal conversation, and I was I was appealing to his vanity, and we were just I was just keeping him pumped, and then at one point I just gently drop in the question, you know, do you do you feel like your mother loved you, or do you feel like there were indications that your mother didn't love you? that could create a small break in the narcissistic shield possibly it's possible and i've seen that happen um that you know he may become upset he may become enraged or he may become very very sad um, but yes it does indicate that on some level maybe not consciously but on some level he knew he wasn't loved jan is wondering whether people are born being narcissistic or is it triggered during childhood um I'm, I've always been very much on the side that it's it's nurture, not nature. But that's partly because of how I was trained at university when, when we did psychology. That was the way everything leaned. It does seem to me to be a largely learned response. But there is an evolutionary psychologist I speak to sometimes called Professor Ed Dutton. And he's told me that there is pretty solid evidence that there are um, genetic factors to this as well. So it could be an epigenetic thing. There may be latent narcissistic traits and then the environment will activate them uh, genetically. But at this point, I'm more on the side of saying it's trauma, but I accept that there are epigenetic factors here. And how variable can that trauma be? That's a really, really good question. Um, so if we say, if we if we hold on to the genetic um, thing. If somebody had, let, let's say that that model is the correct one, that it's, it's epigenetics. It's, it's not just genes. It's not just environment. It's both. And it's how the environment affects the expression of, of the genetics you're born with. So let's say I have very high latent narcissism and you have very low latent narcissism genetically. And we're both raised in the same environment with, with largely the same pressures. Maybe there's only two years between us as, as, as brothers. And so the parents are largely the same age, going through the same economic struggles and whatever else, the same cultural environment. And I become a full-blown narcissist and you don't. That's where we could see the, the, the genetic factors there. And maybe, like you said, how variable is it? Maybe the trauma wasn't even that bad. It's just that I didn't need much of a trigger. There was a trigger. There was trauma, but I didn't need much to become a full-blown narcissistic personality disordered human being. I see. What percent of people are narcissists? 
you're going to get all kinds of answers online now. You've got doctors, psychiatrists saying that it's it's as high as thirty percent, forty percent. I seriously doubt that. I think I think the problem that we're facing. I'm not going to bore people with with like academic uh, like arguments, but there there is something that has to be resolved within psychiatry, which is they need a better definition between narcissists and people with full blown narcissistic personality disorder. People who we're calling narcissists who have highly pronounced narcissistic traits could go to therapy if they so choose. And after years of genuine, authentic effort, they, they, I believe that they could change. Full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, that's a person who's had a full psychotic break with reality, and I don't believe that they're reachable. Full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, I would go by the old statistics from eight, ten years ago and say that's one, one to three percent of the population. It's still quite rare. We do live in a time where narcissistic traits are inflamed. That's the nature of the culture and the economy that we're in right now. So for malignant narcissists, then it's going to be an even small frac- smaller fraction, isn't it? I would think so. But yeah, I mean, the other thing to think about, like if you just ramp the numbers up, say if we say, oh, it's 1%, that's one in 100 people. So you start saying a 1,000, a million, whatever the UK is now, are we 61 million, 62 million people? If, if it was as high as 30%, I don't think the culture would function. I think everything would just fall apart because... They poison the environment that they're in. If every human being is regularly in contact with, let's say, 10, 10 to 20 other human beings, and all those 10 to 20 other human beings are being abused narcissistically, I think I really think culture would fall apart. I don't. I, wow. So I, I don't. I don't. I, I don't buy it. So we've not got a question from Joe, but I thought this was an interesting comment to get you to comment on. My ex-husband is a malignant narcissist. He became a lieutenant colonel. So he could kill lots of people. Five tours on purpose. What do you make of that? Um, I, I I know a guy, um, not professionally, but he's he's a friend of mine who who took that route. Um, and uh, yes, he he went on tours, and then when he finished, he, he went private, and it was it was for that reason. He started working for private military and got even more of what he was looking for. Um, it's that's malignant narcissism, but that is that's that's beyond narcissism. That is psychopathy. If they're actively enjoying um, killing people, that's you're talking about a psychopath as well. That's what I thought. So is that actually a good use of a psychopath? Because even though these guys are thrown in prison these days, if you go back hundreds of years, wouldn't they have jumped with the first to jump up and grab the axe and, and lop the heads off the invading uh, Vikings or whatever? Yeah, I think I think there's a good argument for that. I think there's the there's even an argument in psychology or a book that was written about it called the Warrior Gene. Um, there might you might need a certain number of of people in any um, community of humans who are psychopaths who 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 can who have a bloodlust who do want to actively go and and hunt and terrorize the enemy with with sadism. It's not very nice to say, but if we're not living in civilized times. These are actually adaptive traits. In, in other times, it wouldn't be enough to simply want to subdue the enemy or keep them away from you. You would want, probably a controversial point, you want real lunatics on your side who are sadists who are going to actively terrorize the enemy to make sure they never return to your shores again. Right, this is going to be the last question because we've almost run out of time. We've got to keep it under a minute, the answer. 
Uh, Jean is wondering, what professions do narcissists pick mostly to feed their illness? There's, there's research on this uh, between, if you look, if you Google, uh, if you go to Google Scholar and look up professions and narcissism, uh, there is actually pretty good published research on this. They go for positions of power. That's how I would answer that question quickly. They're, they are where you would expect them to be. All right. Huge thank you for spending time with us, Richard. Can you tell the viewers where they can find you and support you and follow you and stalk you? Uh, if you would like to stalk me and support me and follow me, if you put uh, Richard Grannon, G-R-A-N-N-O-N, into YouTube, you will see I'm pumping out content all day, every day, whether people like it or not. <laughs> Same here. Cheers to that. Thanks for joining us, man. It's always a pleasure. And, sure. uh, yeah, take care, my friend. Toodaloo. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.